Welcome back. <laughs> yeah. To another episode of the Cult Popcast. From Steven's Living Room. I still hate that name. What? I thought I thought we loved that name. We birthed that name. You, do you mind. like that name? That's no, not great, but <laughs> I know <laughs> it's it, not bad. I think it came down to like a game time decision and we're like, that's the name we're gonna go with. I had put forth what was the one I had it was longer. We had a lot of names. I wanted the pop culture podcast, but oh yeah, it was taken. Just wasn't it? straight up, <laughs> yeah, it was taken. Turns out this isn't the first pop culture podcast that has been made. <laughs> this is a genre in and of itself. That's true. What was it? It was like the crash. Oh pop, yeah, pop, pop culture, culture crash, crash course. course. <laughs> it was the PCCC. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. So this is what we're doing today. We're doing Hamilton, an American musical, newly released on Disney Plus. Yep. And uh, Gabe? That's me. <laughs> Gabe is with us. <laughs> what a surprise. Who else is here with us today? We have back series regulars, Allie Burnett. Hi there. And we have back with us today, Anna. Anna, I don't remember your last name. Hurley. <laughs> Hurley. Hurley. Um, <laughs> you just cut the middle part out. <laughs> nope, I'm keeping it. <laughs> I'm terrible. I don't. I don't remember your last name either, Gibbs. It's not important. It's really. It rhymes with Aunt Gummery. Um, so yeah, because these are people who also loved the film and are also lovers of history. Because Anna, for one, too, was a history major. So yes, I was. I feel like I should do a disclaimer that I don't know everything about the Revolutionary War. So if I say something that is not correct, I apologize to any historians listening, and I'm just going to try my best. I did not study that, and I only did an undergraduate degree. So I'm still really much just, more than the average yeah. person, I think. What does it take to be considered a historian? I don't really know. I think Do you just at one point just declare yourself a historian? I think probably in the field, having a doctorate is really when people start taking you seriously. Um, hmm. So I don't think in an academic way I would ever really be considered a historian, but maybe like an amateur historian. and that, Aspiring. Yeah, yes. Probably um, some kind of You're further along than all of us in this room. Yeah. Allie was actually encouraged to become a history major. I had multiple history professors. I think two or three of them try and convince me to change my major to history. So I have an opening question. Ooh. What are some of your favorite musicals, individuals? I've only seen a couple in my life, but I think the most memorable for me, and it might be a cliche answer, because I was in New York. We saw Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I love Phantom of the and Opera. And I was a yeah. big fan of that. I'd see, I remember the film. But seeing it live on a stage is really special. I think that's been one of my favorite ones to see live. I really want to see Les Mis live, but I've never seen that. But mm. I love the film. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to pick a favorite. Anna, I feel like you're very educated with musicals. Sound of Music would be really up there for me. Yes. Although the movie of Sound of Music is so much better than the musical mm. version of it. And that's one that I grew up. I feel like maybe one of the first live action movies I watched as a kid. And now looking back, I'm like, I did not understand a lot of the Nazi plot to that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Nazis. Yeah. Didn't you meet Julie Andrews? I did meet Julie Andrews. What? My my apartment building when I lived in San Francisco as a child was on Taylor and Broadway, and they filmed the movie Princess Diaries <gasps> on that street while I lived there. Um, and so there's the scene where Anne Hathaway's car is trying mm-hmm. to go up the really large hill, and then it rolls back. 
and that was on the street that I lived on. And so I went up to Julie Andrews and I had her sign my Sound Aww. of Music. And I don't think I was at an age where I realized that it was really Julie Andrews, <laughs> but she was very nice. And that's so yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. I love Sound of Music too. I grew up on yeah. it as well. And then I did a few musicals in high school. <laughs> I did Fiddler on the Roof in high school. Mm-hmm. And then my sister is really into musical theater. Singing in the Rain would be really high up oh, there. I love that one. And I really like A Chorus Line. That one's really good. Dogfight is really good. And it's based off a River Phoenix movie. Mm. Waitress is really good. Oh, The Last Five Years I really like. I don't know. There's a lot of different Mm -hmm. musicals. I don't want to go on too long. I always loved like older movies growing up. So I would say I've seen so many like musicals on screen and less live. I've only seen like a handful live. So I feel like that's a dynamic too that maybe alters the perspective of the musical. Just not being there and... I loved putting on plays growing up. So I've just always loved narrative and play and musicals. And yeah. But I'm not like a niche musical person at all. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be more educated in musical theater. but I think it's hard because theater can be kind of an elitist thing sometime mm-hmm. of like, oh, I have to buy tickets and then go to this thing. And then there's a whole thing of the cast album recordings are really popular mm-hmm. because... A lot of the times that's the only way people can have access to theater right. in the professional form. And that's why what we're talking about today is really great because it has been released more to the masses than mm-hmm. other theater performances mm-hmm. in the past. 100%. My personal favorites, I've never been a big musical person. I am interested in it just as a genre because everything I have seen seems really well thought out. And I like that somebody sat down and figured out how these characters should play out and these melodies and have wrote these amazing mantras for these characters but some musicals don't really land on me like I've seen Wicked twice once in New York on Broadway and I hate that play (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to see it twice it's just that a bunch of my friends were going but I grew up watching Disney animated films and those are written in the same way that musicals are written so I would have to say like Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite musicals Howard Ashman, the documentary on Disney Plus that just came out about him, and the three movies that he wrote, had a hand in before he died, um, are super good. In fact, my, I think my earliest memory of seeing a movie in the theater is The Little Mermaid in 89, which is crazy. I must have been like two and a half. And then I really like Hamilton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why we're doing Hamilton. <laughs> oh, I really like Sound of Music, too. You also love Hamilton. I like Emmy Rossum. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, second question. What, if anything, what did you know about Alexander Hamilton before watching this? Very little. (laughs) I feel like the one thing you grow up knowing about Alexander Hamilton is that he died in a duel with Aaron Burr. And I feel like duels are such an antiquated idea that I feel like when people talk about that in history class, when you're a kid, you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool and different. It's pretty wild to think about. Mm -hmm. It seems like a film trope. Yeah. That these two famous gentlemen would actually walk Tim Pace's turn and shoot at each other. Yeah. And like you can't imagine politicians now doing that. They would so do it if it was still on the table. Yeah, exactly. And then I feel like I got really into presidential history. I went to Mount Rushmore and I bought these presidential flashcards. 
And just a little tip to anyone that's really interested in history, and especially U.S. history, I think knowing the presidents is actually a really important way to understand history, Mm. just because I think knowing the context in which they were elected Mm. is really interesting to know how the country was transforming over the years. Mm -hmm. So I think that really helped shape my view of U.S. history was doing that. And I think through that, it's as you learn through this musical, it's pretty hard to escape Alexander Hamilton in those early years of U.S. history. But I don't know if I knew quite the extent of how prolific he was during those years. I think I probably knew that he was the first treasurer, that he was a big part in taking on the national debt. And I think I did know about the Federalist Papers as well. I knew very little, too. I knew that he wrote the Federalist Papers or had a huge hand in that, but I didn't know pretty much anything about his personal life and everything that the play reveals. Yeah, I really just, I knew his name. I knew that he had a huge influence on the ideology of our country, but I didn't know the extent to which his influence, you know, really manifested. Yeah, I honestly didn't know much. Unfortunate to do as much as he did and then to be remembered for the way you died mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah there's this really famous got milk commercial from the 90s have any of you guys seen that at all no okay <laughs> and then the only other thing is from the lonely island song blazy sunday where they talk about this girl acts like she's never seen a 10 before and they go it's all about the hamiltons baby <laughs> so that's all i knew those two things both from pop culture references those were the two things that i knew about hamilton How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar What is Hamilton? That's the question that you're not asking. Hamilton is a musical written by a man named Lin-Manuel Miranda about one of the more unexplored founding fathers of America and the nation's first treasury secretary named Alexander Hamilton. This particular musical that we're talking about today was recorded in 2015 on stage with the original cast and then was just released on Disney Plus back in July. And that's why we're doing it today. So... You might be asking, who is Lin-Manuel Miranda? Because some people don't know who he is. So here's a huge breakdown and background of Lin-Manuel Miranda and how Hamilton began. So he was born in January 16th of 1980 in New York City. I can't believe he's only seven years older than I am. To his mom, who was a psychologist, and his dad, who was a Democratic Party consultant. He's Puerto Rican descent, and growing up, he spent a month each year in Vega Alta, Puerto Rico, with his grandparents. Lin-Manuel began writing musicals in high school. In college, he wrote the earliest draft of what later became his first Broadway musical in the Heights in 1999 at Wesleyan University. He included freestyle rap and salsa numbers to it, and it premiered there in 1999. He graduated from college in 2002, in the Heights played, and then it moved to Broadway until 2010. He helped craft and write the Bring It On musical, then went on to do a few other things, including uh, getting into television and film. All the while crafting the Hamilton musical, which was known at the time as the Hamilton mixtape. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton! On a vacation in 2008, Lin Manuel read the Alexander Hamilton biography written by Ron Chernow that came out a few years earlier and was a New York Times bestseller. 
This biography sparked something in Lin-Manuel Miranda. He wrote the first song titled Alexander Hamilton from the perspective of Aaron Burr, which he performed for the Obamas in the White House in 2009. He spent the whole next year writing one song that we now know as My Shot. He kept revising it over and over trying to reflect the intellect of Alexander Hamilton. By 2012, he had finished about a dozen songs. He performed at Lincoln Center's American Songbook series, and the New York Times reviewed it with high, high praise that encouraged them to continue forward. By 2013, they had one full act done. There was a man named Oscar Eustace, who was the artistic director of New York's public theater, and then a theater critic named Jeremy McCarter joined the staff for the public theater, and he kept talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda saying that he embodied the future of musical theater. So both Eustace and McCarter agreed to develop a fully staged two-musical act. Lin-Manuel and crew then went on to finish the other act in the next two years as it gained traction. And then Hamilton premiered in January 2015 at the Public Theater and was an immediate smash success. Hamilton won the Tony Award for the Best Musical. Lin-Manuel Miranda won the Tony Awards for Best Original Score and Best Book of a Musical. He was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical. He then won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. And the Hamilton cast album won the Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. Lin-Manuel Miranda gave his last performance as Hamilton on July 9th, 2016, a year and a half later. He reprised this briefly for three weeks in Puerto Rico. Lin-Manuel went on to do a bunch of work specifically for Disney, writing songs for Moana, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Rise of Skywalker, with performances in DuckTales, the animated series, and Mary Poppins Returns, with upcoming ties to an animated musical called Encanto, set in Colombia with Disney, and also the live-action Little Mermaid. He is also supposed to compose something for Lionsgate, and then write 11 songs for an upcoming Sony animated film. He received an honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters from his alma mater of Wesleyan University. He also received honorary degrees from Yeshiva University in Washington Heights, Manhattan, and another honorary doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. And he is married to his high school friend that he used to know, and has two sons that are six and two. Which is also crazy because he had his first son two months before Hamilton premiered in January. That must have been just a crazy time in his life. <laughs> but clearly this dude is super accomplished. Honorary degrees, Tony Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, and he still has a huge career ahead of him. He's as famous, I think, as you could get these days. But he's been quoted saying about Hamilton that the whole goal with the musical is to, quote, eliminate any distance between contemporary audience and this story that happened over 200 years ago, end quote. Which is why he included all of these modern musical elements and modern language. He felt like Hamilton's story was the quote-unquote proto-immigrant American story, and that Alexander Hamilton is someone he believes quote-unquote embodies hip-hop. He also calls it a love letter to writers. Because Hamilton was a writer and came to this country looking to make his mark and used his literary skills to do so. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda and how and why he wrote Hamilton. He was super inspired by Ron Chernow's biography. For people that like Lin-Manuel Miranda, In the Heights is going to be a movie that is coming out next year. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's starring Anthony Ramos, who is the guy that is Lawrence and Philip in Hamilton. He's going to be the lead. He also really likes to work with people that he's worked with before. So Chris Jackson, who's George Washington, was also in Moana, and he was also in In the Heights. I've seen the trailer for that film. I didn't realize that was his first musical that mm-hmm. he wrote. Yeah, it was, it was the thing that put him on the map at a young age because he was in college, <laughs> which is crazy. I know I didn't 
do anything like that in college. <laughs> yeah, I think his popularity right now is just so interesting because it's very rare that someone who writes musical theater music crosses over into pop culture the way that he has. Um, yeah, like, I feel true. like people probably know of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim would probably be the two other people that are maybe comparable, but I don't think even they compare to his success of now being in, so tied to Disney and being in the new Mary Poppins movie and stuff like that. I think it's pretty rare, especially I really appreciate Lin-Manuel Miranda because he's not a great singer. <laughs> he's very good with words and I think rapping to a certain extent, but yeah, he's not a great singer and I just think it's so impressive that he's been able to write himself into his own roles because I think at heart he's just a musical theater kid and so he's always wanted to be on Broadway and he kind of decided like I don't think that I will be cast in musicals so I'm going to write my own parts in musicals and I'm going to be the lead but if you're that good then absolutely you can do that it's interesting too just how Lin-Manuel Miranda's life in certain respects mimics Hamilton's how they both kind of wrote their way to success and through their merit-based actions and talents and Emmanuel was an immigrant or his parents were immigrants Mm -hmm. he really identifies with his Puerto Rican descent Mm -hmm. I think that that is something important to note I'm going to quickly list the cast this will be my last spiel spiel for a while (laughs) thanks Gabe for the word yeah I think it's German I think you're German Uh, a little bit (laughs) (laughs) okay so the play was directed by Thomas Kale or Kyle. It wasn't directed by Lynn? No, he wrote it and starred in it, but oh. that's what he's credited for. And then it was musically directed, which is also interesting, by Alex Lackamore. And the cast is as follows. Again, we're sticking to the Disney Plus version, uh, the version that you would hear on the soundtrack. I also am going to tell you their ethnicity as you go, just so you can keep it in mind throughout the podcast. It's important to know because we're going to be talking about the diversity of the cast and why that's important. Lin-Manuel Miranda is Alexander Hamilton, and he's Puerto Rican-American. Leslie Odom Jr. is Aaron Burr, amazing voice, by the way, and he's African-American. Philippa Sue is Eliza Hamilton, and she's Chinese-American. Renee Elise Goldsberry is Angelica Schuyler, and she's African-American. My man, Christopher Jackson, is George Washington. I love that guy. He's awesome. Uh, African-American. David Diggs is Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and he's African-American and Jewish. Oak Anadawan is Hercules Mulligan and James Madison, and he's African-American. Jasmine Cephas Jones is Peggy Schuyler and Maria Reynolds, and she's African-American. Anthony Ramos is John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton, and he's Puerto Rican-American probably as well. And Jonathan Groff is King George III, and he's European-American. Then there's a bunch of amazing background characters as well who come into play, like the bullet. She's super interesting, has a very interesting role throughout the musical. Anyway, that is the main cast. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lil Adam Jr., amazing voice, Philip Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Christopher Jackson, David Diggs, Oak Anadawan, Jasmine Cephas Jones, Anthony Ramos, and Jonathan Brown. Jonathan Groff, you might know from Netflix's Mindhunter or the Frozen films. He plays Kristoff in them. Well, he was also in the musical Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening. He was also in Glee. He was big role in Glee. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the nemesis of the Glee club throughout yeah. the series. So that's the cast. The cult 
podcast. Mm, I see what you did there. And now we get to the discussion. <laughs> I know. I was thinking there's just so many layers to this musical of like, well, we have to talk about the musical itself, but then there's also the history. Yes. But then there's also the background of the musical. And the cultural really impact. Important. Yeah, it. and the cultural impact. So there's just so many layers to yeah. discuss here. Tickets for this musical were famously sold out like forever, unless you wanted to spend a lot of money to go see it or you had to fly and then spend a lot of money to go see it. Personally, I didn't want to listen to any of the soundtrack until I saw it in context on the stage. So coming out on Disney Plus was super awesome and super anticipated for years for me because all I ever did was hear how good it was because people just wouldn't shut up about it. Again, I personally think this is one of those rare works of art that actually either lives up to the hype or even exceeds it. And if there's anyone out there that hasn't seen it yet, I think we all in this room couldn't recommend it enough. It is definitely that good. And when I first saw this, when it came out back in July, my head was spinning and I was trying to comprehend what I just saw. There were three things, like Anna just was saying, that there's the musical itself and the music, there's the cultural impact of the play, and then there's the actual history and context behind what the musical is portraying. And those are the three things that my head was spinning about. But the biggest one for me was how historically accurate was this? And the answer is... Uh, it was super accurate. <laughs> so at this point, we will break up the rest of the podcast into three parts. The first will be the historical accuracy. The second part will be the cultural impact. And then we'll do the musicality and the actual music behind it. And I'll just start by saying these couple quick bits. Ron Chernow, the author of the biography, came and consulted on the musical as it was being crafted, so Lin-Manuel was able to bounce ideas off of him, and he was able to have input. And most of the details you are hearing about the life of Hamilton and the other characters are true to how the events transpired. There are some plot lines that they take some liberty on, but not to go so far as being historically inaccurate. They just play off of them a little more. For example, there's not much evidence to say that Angelica was as in love with Hamilton as she's depicted in the musical. They were apparently sort of flirtatious, but that was about it. So they just play a little more into it in the musical to kind of create more drama, I suppose. When you first told me to watch it, you said, just to remark on the point you made about how good it was and how living up to the hype works, you said it really was one of those things that you can't explain the genius of it, and it will inevitably be something that is timeless, I think, and just so incredible to watch, which I thought, I don't know about that. It's just a musical. How good could it be? And then you watch, and you're like, oh, this is really something special. It didn't have the same impact for you that it did for me or for some other people, right? I wasn't thinking about it for weeks on end like you were, you know, <laughs> playing the soundtrack in the car every minute of my travel. But it was on my mind for a long time. And I think the reason it didn't have the same impact for me was just because even though I'm, I have big interest in history, most of my interests right now are elsewhere, you know. <laughs> science fiction or whatnot. So it didn't land at the right time. I think if this had been when I was in high school, for instance, it would be a little different when I was taking all those history courses. Mm -hmm. It'd be more timely for me on a personal level. Mm -hmm. But it is just because of everything that's going on in the world now, I think. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, how important it is. I was just going to say too, I think it's something that does grow on you if you watch it and then listen to the soundtrack and then keep listening to the soundtrack. Because when you first watch it, they just say so many things in yeah. some of the songs that you don't really compute them, I think. 
sometimes it doesn't hit you at first what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I think on first watch, and it's really upon re-listening over and over again. And I think part of that is due to the fact that it was originally meant to be a Mm mixtape. It was just supposed to be an album. It wasn't supposed to be a musical. So he originally was just going to make an album about this. And then later when they performed it, they realized like there's something really here for a musical and he's already made a musical. So we think we can make this happen. But I think because of that, it does hold up when you just listen to it. I mean, the staging and the actors do add so much to it, but it does hold up listening to it because it is really about the words. And I think that was also intentional because Hamilton was really about the words. When you listen to it, you have a deeper appreciation for it. I did see it um, live. You did? I did in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, it was really great. Different cast. Yeah, my family intentionally bought the season pass before so that we could be automatically signed up for the next season, which was the Hamilton season. I think a lot of San Franciscans did that in um, anticipation. Yeah, I think seeing it, I'd heard a few of the songs beforehand, but then after I saw it, I definitely started listening to more of the soundtrack and some of the songs hit very differently upon Mm -hmm. seeing it too compared to just listening to it. historical accuracy though it's pretty accurate as Steve was saying some of the plot lines are exaggerated there are certain things that are only briefly mentioned that were maybe bigger deals in Hamilton's life things like Hamilton is known for having wanted a lifelong monarchy at the Constitutional Convention and that was a pretty controversial idea (laughs) and I think we can all agree we're very glad that there is no lifelong monarchy. No man is perfect. Well, he was a federalist. Yeah, He started the Federalist Party. Mm-hmm. So he believed in big government. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted a president that was elected for a lifelong term. I think we're all really glad that didn't happen. He, in his mind, it couldn't be a tyrant monarchy because there would still be the power of impeachment. And so he thought, well, if you can be impeached, then you can't be a tyrant. But I think that probably wouldn't have worked out very well in hindsight. And I think the idea of four terms is a good idea probably and so i think that is kind of shown during when washington is going to retire from the presidency by his own choice hamilton is really shaken by that and kind of confused about why he would do that because things are going pretty well at the time but washington kind of knew that it would be better to transfer power and that he did not want to have the role of being in charge for that long Did he become president right when the revolution was won? No. So they had the Articles of Confederation, in which time there was no president. It was basically just all of the states were united under a very thin, not even a constitution, just they were united, but they were still very much separate states. And then it was Hamilton who had a big part because he wrote so many of the Federalist Papers Mm -hmm. that argued for the Constitution. Yeah, the Articles of Confederation, and that lasted quite a while, a surprisingly long time. Mm -hmm. And just slowly, it was pretty clear things weren't working Mm -hmm. and that all of the states were pretty weak because they weren't united in any real way. Mm -hmm. And so they were very vulnerable to Mm -hmm. like any attack the United States was still very much up for grabs in some ways Mm -hmm. like England was not fully out of the United States until a few years after the Battle of Yorktown actually there were still several battles after that the Battle of Yorktown (laughs) 
Um, the Articles of Confederation, by the way, were ratified in 81 and then replaced by the Constitution in 89. And that would have been when Washington became president. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know Governor Morris, the famous, <laughs> who we all know and love, Governor Morris, he, um, <laughs> he did the preamble. And so he was a big part in changing it from we the people of the states of blah, 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 to just we the people of the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's very symbolic of it being like, it's not us all separately anymore. It's us all together. But yeah, I think people realized that the Articles of Confederation weren't working. And certain people decided to meet up, I believe in Annapolis, and try to make changes. And it was pretty secretive at the time because the idea of changing the Articles of Confederation was pretty controversial, even though it wasn't working because they were just still so scared of a monarchy and revolution happening again. But there were already kind of skirmishes happening just while things weren't really working. So then the next year after Annapolis, they kind of did some little things to try to change it. And then they met up in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. And Alexander Hamilton was part of that. But George Washington was there, and that's when George Washington was elected as a part of that. So he was elected by all the delegates there, I believe. And the Articles of Confederation, the reason we don't remember is because I did not know his name. John Dickinson? Mm Mm-hmm. After they wrote the Constitution, a bunch of people signed it, but then it had to be ratified. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people weren't sure about ratifying it. And the Federalist Papers were a big part in convincing different states to ratify and why it would Mm -hmm. be a good idea. And I think Hamilton's big point was that we needed a centralized government Mm -hmm. and that nothing was going to get done unless we had more power in the government. And I think he would have liked a lot more power to the government. I think Jefferson and Madison really kind of stopped that from happening by being more pro-agrarian farmer. Mm -hmm. And they wanted a lot more states' rights, and they ended up getting a mix of that in there, which I think ended up being for the best. I think everyone left the Constitutional Convention having made concessions. Nobody got exactly what they wanted. A good thing. Yeah, I think that's a big thing because all of them had to make compromises. Some of them were very negative. Like, I know slavery got kicked really down the line. Basically, all the people who wrote the Constitution were like, we're not going to talk about slavery until 1808. They basically just were like, we'll let the next generation deal with that. The people that were anti-slavery kept it from being written into the Constitution. John Lawrence was a very big abolitionist, and it's too bad that he died so soon. He wasn't really able to be a part of the Constitutional Convention at all. John Adams was actually a very big anti-slavery person. He never owned slaves throughout his life. I think Hamilton was a little more complicit in the system than maybe they portray him. And I know that has been a topic in which I think yeah, when Hamilton criticism. Yeah. Yeah. When Hamilton came out, I did see a big cancel Hamilton Twitter trending topic. Of course. And I think that the show definitely doesn't really focus on slavery. I don't think it really could have because it was spanning his entire lifetime. Yeah. But it, it alludes yeah. to it a couple times. Yeah. And honestly, I think because it's following Hamilton's story and it's trying to be historically accurate that it doesn't get into it as much as it could have if it were following other people. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I actually had a lot of thoughts on this. I feel like it's less about focusing on the historical things that were happening with slavery during that time and more so what the Lin Man (laughs) is doing with the play. He's taking these prominent figures in history and he's using a multiracial cast to, in my opinion, envision a new American dream. Mm -hmm. So, 
that one quote from the beginning, which I feel like really sets the tone and lends the spirit of that American dream portrayed by Hamilton. And it's the, how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar. So I feel like having that narrative in the very beginning referring to Hamilton, right? Referring to Hamilton. <laughs> Just so everyone's clear. Yes, that refers to Hamilton. <laughs> That's kind of what the play opens with. And it's one, a huge nod, obviously, to the American dream and starting from nothing and through merit-based work becoming something. And the American dream has definitely been convoluted over the years. And I think, you know, more so even in the 20th century, it's evolved to become more of that great Gatsby type of mentality of acquiring wealth and acquiring a name for yourself and more focused on money. Mm -hmm. But originally it was viewed more as like a merit-based, you know, starting from nothing and through merit, through education, through one's talents and God-given gifts, acquiring status or acquiring Mm -hmm. one's dream. Throughout the play, you hear lyrics that echo that. So I'm New York, you can be a new man. And then my shot, I'm not throwing away my shot. It's all about this is Alexander Hamilton's shot in history. And history is happening right now. And we're lucky to be alive right now. And it's just there's all of this tension set around what can an individual do with one's talents and ambition, even when you don't have connections. And that is what, you know, America, the idealism surrounds. However, I think what Lin Man is doing by using a multiracial cast, by using hip hop and rap and the musical genres that he uses, he's re-envisioning a new American dream to include people of color and people who have originally historically been marginalized and putting them in the place of a dream of equality. And even though the play has been criticized for or the fact that it's using these historical figures that maybe were complicit with slavery or supported slavery. I don't think that's the point. I think Miranda's using these figures in a really profound way because he's essentially replacing them with people of color and he's giving people of color a voice in what the American dream should be. And so in a sense, he's kind of rewriting what that hope, that American hope should be in our modern context. I was doing a little reading about the discourse that had happened recently, and Ava DuVernay, the director, actually had a quote which I really like. A director and fan of Hamilton. Yes. She wrote, because one Twitter user had accused her of celebrating a slave trader, she wrote, a Broadway musical isn't a history book. I actually read those, so I understand the difference between a brilliantly rendered play and actual American history. And I think that's really true, because I think while Hamilton is very historically accurate in the narratives that it presents it's also only one man's story and it's only a certain lens of history and it's also only can fit what it can into that amount of time if you want to learn more about alexander hamilton and his views of all these different things you can read ron chernow's books there's so much information on the internet out there you can read from different historians who have different viewpoints to ron chernow so i do think that you should separate the two in certain ways of not equating the play with the entire story of the revolutionary war and all the complications that happen there totally it's clearly an art form it's a colorful interpretation of a historical narrative but used in a rhetorical way i think to argue for certain messages 
The Battle of Yorktown. 1781. At this point, I think we're already talking about it, so let's move to the cultural impact. Immigrants, we get the job done. That was the other thing that was kind of spinning around in my head after I first saw it. I was just how much this was doing for underrepresented people of color, specifically in musical theater and just art in general. Miranda uses the underdog story that a lot of hip-hop artists identify with and the hip-hop culture to create a tone that is clearly effective, not in just getting the story across to a multi-demographic audience, but also a tone that is embodied by every song and everyone on the stage. And like you were just saying, he specifically cast every character, actual historical people, with a person of color or minority and essentially saying this country was built on the backs of everyone not just white people especially white men this is a quote the play is inviting us to have a new understanding of history he being Lin-Manuel Miranda portrays the founding fathers not as stiff iconic figures we vaguely remember from our school books but instead as vividly real people orphans hustlers dreamers and reckless revolutionaries it is all too human perhaps the play's greatest achievement is being not just a thrilling piece of entertainment but an inspiring reminder that we all have a stake in the future of our country And I loved that to just support what you were just saying, Ali, that this is clearly doing something super dynamic for underrepresented minorities in our country and will have a long lasting impact on the future of not just musical theater, but I think all of art, which is awesome. To have equal representation, I think, is the goal, right? You know. And I think it just creates an ongoing discussion of how do we do this because the systems that have been put in place, obviously the systemic racism of our country and then the systems that have been in place and have evolved over time that have marginalized different racial groups like Native Americans and, um, you know, many racial groups, they've immobilized those people from having that chance, even through merit-based success, as easily as other groups. And so I think that's the discussion of, okay, how can we make it equal for anyone to be able to have their story Mm -hmm. I can see the divide of a lot of those systems are in place because of the founding fathers and who they were and the fact that it was all white, wealthy, property-owning men who created a lot of these systems or either didn't really want to deal with the systems and so they just kind of were like, we'll deal with it later. So I can see the discourse over that a little bit, but I think that that's where the divide between history and watching a musical comes in and what Lin-Manuel Miranda intended with the musical. I think he really intended what you guys were saying. Anyone can have this big effect on how history plays out and Mm -hmm. that after watching the musical hopefully you feel like you want to be civically engaged and Mm -hmm. be interested in what's going on but I do think that there is that difficulty because it is about those people (laughs) that casting people of color doesn't necessarily abolish them of what they've done and I think you can see that especially with George Washington they do mention Thomas Jefferson being a slaveholder but I don't think they ever mention George Washington being a Mm slaveholder Alexander Hamilton wasn't pro-abolition. He was pro-manumission. So he wanted people to free their own slaves, but he didn't believe in just having a blanket rule of having no slaves. Mm -hmm. So there is that just kind of discourse 
But for that, I would just encourage people to read about history and learn about history and go beyond just Hamilton. I don't think it's fair for Hamilton to have to take on all of the burden of explaining every aspect of American history in this musical. (laughs) Um, So I think that people shouldn't write it off so quickly. If Mm -hmm. you've been reading any of that stuff, I think you should give it a chance. I also think it's just so intrinsically connected to the Obama administration in that it premiered during the Obama administration. His first performance of the show ever was at the White House during a poetry slam that Michelle Obama put on. Michelle Obama loves Hamilton. She has talked about it a lot. She invited them to the White House several times. And I think it is just kind of what we thought America was heading into was this sort of future. And so it's interesting Mm. to watch it now where a lot of people are talking about the failures of government, at least in my world, a lot of people are talking about the failures of government compared to kind of celebrating it. And so I think the Obamas are kind of a representation of that American dream story, whereas what we're living in now is kind of the opposite of that. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) it is just interesting watching it through a 2020 lens. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to remember it for what it was in 2016 and everything. And I think you can't forget that that is when it came out. Well, Obama was kind of like the personification of this play. Mm -hmm. I mean, taking up the mantle of the presidency, a role that has always historically been the wealthy white, you know, landowner man, so... Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It's so crazy what a deviation the current president is from the progression of the last president. It's, it's like walking whiplash. off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. No comment. Whiplash is an accurate statement. Yeah. <laughs> I would say this was a really big deal in the theater community, too. It was so prevalent in pop culture, was pretty new. When the cast album was released, it debuted as number one on the rap charts on the Billboard Top 100. So that is very rare. And the fact that Hamilton was asked to perform at the Grammys, normally musical theater <laughs> shows are not asked to perform at the Grammys. They do always have that category but you rarely see them performing. And I think the fact that it did become such a big pop culture moment was a very big deal for theater. And I think within the theater community, it was very exciting as it showed that there is still a place for musical theater and pop culture. Sometimes it's thought of as kind of an antiquated medium where not everyone's interested in it. And sometimes the songs are a little bit cheesy and it's weird that people are breaking into song. But I think Hamilton showed that there's is still a place for it in pop culture and that hopefully musicals can continue to evolve Mm -hmm. and transform with changing times. I agree with you and I was going to add one thing that your point about the Obama administration when it came out and then now in 2020 with it coming to Disney Plus and a whole I mean what millions I don't know of new viewers who have not been able to see it including Steven and I who watched it for the first time on our TV at home I think that that is really important to recognize too it's kind of reawakened again in 2020 and I think it's sparking a new discussion once again Mm -hmm. in a different historical moment yeah yes (laughs) to play off of what Anna just said a little bit. Hamilton kind of paving a new 
pathway for musicals to have a place in today's culture. One thing that was interesting about the music behind Hamilton was that even though it was rapping, there's very little actual talking. It was constant song after song after song or singing or melody or some sort of transition into the next song. So it wasn't like some musicals that you might have seen where it was song and then you have some talking and then another song. This was constant music almost the whole time, like just a wall of a super diverse music. And now here we go into the music. Lin-Manuel Miranda said that he tried to take from as many different genres as possible in creating this. The biggest ones that stand out are hip-hop and R&B, and we're going to take you through some of these influences. And they won't all be R&B and rap. There are other genres that we'll discuss here as well. And I thought it'd be fun to force Gabe to speak. All right. <laughs> but we're not going to do all of the influences everything there's a lot more there's a many more comparisons but these are just some of the influences that we found also we're going to do it in the hamilton soundtrack order well it begins the first one mc shan's the bridge that has these opening snare drums that sort of match the opening snare drums from aaron burr sir And then you have this moment in a Tribe Called Quest scenario. Which is similar to this part in my shot. This next song is not R&B, but is famously influenced by the Beatles. You'll be back, soon you'll see. you remember you belong to me. But has also been commonly linked to the Monkees song, Daydream Believer. But it rains and I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. Lin-Manuel Miranda himself has said he was really taking from the Beatles here. For example, here in Penny Lane, these descending chords. And all the people that come and go, stop and say hello. Mimic the descending chords in You'll Be Back. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite was an influence, especially if you listen to the walking bass line. And the guitar riff in Getting Better. Mimics the guitar riff and you'll be back. I personally hear revolution. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. Or hey Jude for those ballady songs when they sing and chant something. Like the da da da's and you'll be back. The da da da's. They also use very similar instrumentation, like the harpsichord that you hear so often in Beatles songs. Love, love, love. 
like before. I will fight the fight and win the war. And then Right Hand Man has this underlying groove to it. You might hear reminiscent of Faith Evans' Love Like This. The chords and notes here, kind of similar. Also, DMX's Party Up In Here, that bouncing beat underneath it all. Yeah, and then I hear personally something like Kendrick Lamar's Humble. Hey, I remember syrup sandwiches and crime allowances for on them with some counterfeits, but now I'm counting. It really has that bouncing groove that you hear in Right Hand Man. Any hope of success is fleeting. How can I keep leading when the people I'm leading keep retreating? And then back to a tribe called Quest Scenario. Not only does the guy sort of sound like Lin Manuel, but there's this line where they go boom right at around three minutes, just like in the song Right Hand Man. Powerful impact boom from the cannon. British cannons go boom. This next one is also a little bit tricky because in the song Helpless, people say helpless sounds a lot like Beyonce's Countdown, which I don't really agree with. I think it sounds more like this Brandy Monica song, The Boy Is Mine. Everybody's dancing in the band's top volume. Ride to the rhythm as we ride and die. Rep a sister and whisper you. And then there's also the fact that Eliza says, The boy is mine. It also kind of matches the tempo and melodies from 702's Where My Girl's At. And then also the Fuji song, Killing Me Softly. But it was also famously linked to the Ja Rule, Jennifer Lopez and Ashanti song, I'm Real. The chorus, you mean? Yeah. What does Ja Rule think about all this? And then in the track Stay Alive, you can almost hear that classic James Bond theme. Which makes sense because it has the association of needing to be sleuthy or stealthy to stay alive. And in a more direct homage, you have Lin-Manuel's Ten Dual Commandments, maybe pulling from Notorious B.I.G.'s Ten Crack Commandments. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one. It's the Ten Crack Commandments. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. You have Mark Morrison's Return of the Mac. Where there's a similar tempo and chord progression in Yorktown, but in Yorktown he sort of rushes the chord, whereas in Return of the Mac he hits the chord on beat. You also have Roxanne Shante's Roxanne's Revenge. And Run DMC's Sucker MC's Crush Groove 1. 
Both of these have claps and an underlying beat that you can hear in non-stop and wait for it. Also in R. Kelly and Jay-Z's Fiesta, the opening, you have these repeating lyrics after the, after la, which is similar to the beginning of Nonstop. After the show, it's the after party, yeah. After the party, it's the hotel lobby, yeah. After the war, I went back to New York. After the war, I went back to New York. And then again, we get to a genre break where we get to What Did I Miss? And this is a jazzy blues 12-bar walking line, which is interesting because Jefferson is older than Hamilton. So while Hamilton and his friends are singing hip-hop, Jefferson is a bit behind the times. So what did I miss? What did I miss? Mm. And this can be traced back to artists like Ray Charles and the song called What Did I Say? Tell me what I say, Although he's not walking up and down the whole blues scale as much as What Did I Miss? But you can still hear it. When I first heard it, I thought immediately of Elvis Presley's Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. And then you can also hear it in songs like Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. A Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. Or T-Bone Walker's T-Bone Shuffle. But artists have adopted this over and over from Jimi Hendrix all the way to John Mayer. Then we get to the cabinet battles. These rap battles were modeled after the rap battles in 8 Mile, Eminem. Some of the language here comes from the Grandmaster Flash song, The Message. (laughs) It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Such a blunder, sometimes it makes me wonder why I even bring the thunder. Why he even brings the thunder? You have Cormega's Beautiful Mind. And 50 Cent's Wangster. Specifically the piano and the quick hi-hat beat. That matches the first cabinet battle, cabinet battle number one. And then there's this high piano that comes in, in If I Ruled the World, Nas. Sounds almost exactly like in Cabinet Battle Number One. Trooping out of state for a plate, knowledge. If Coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing, fashion, designer clothes, lacing your click up with diamond rolls. And then in Bone Thugs and Harmonies, The Crossroads. You can hear a similar beat melody to the song Take a Break. I'm coming home this summer at my sister's invitation. I'll be there with your family if you make your way upstate. I know you're very busy. I know your work's important. But I'm crossing the ocean and I just can't wait. And Skylar defeated. You have this bizarre 90s sample, like a blam, like a wigga. You can hear this in Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison. Hook. 
Back to the cabinet battles, the second cabinet battle, you have Biggie's song, Juicy. It was the inspiration for the cabinet battle, too, with this sort of refrain where he goes, and if you don't know, now you know. And if you don't know, now you know. Hey, and if you don't know, now you know. You also have this ensemble track, DeBridge 2001, with a lot of artists, Nas, Capone, Moby Deep, Tragedy, that is reminiscent of Cabinet Battle Number 2, because you have a lot of dueling vocalists and a lot of different personalities coming out in the track. You have the bass and then the repeating high notes. That's similar to Cabinet Battle Number 2. Mega more mature, I'm on a record with nature, mind on my paper, nine on my waist, there's no denying the greatness, Queen yeah, Bridge, never yeah, try to disgrace yeah. it. Hey, yo, the Queen's Bridge Association breeds similarity, bricked up, chipped off, rocked out salaries. Who signed a treaty with a king whose head is now in a basket? Would you like to take it out and ask it? Or should we honor our treaty, King Louis' head? Uh, do whatever you want, I'm super dead. Enough, enough, Hamilton is right. Mr. President. We're too fragile to start another fight. And then a few other tracks that I found that just bleed influence all over. I'll just play a few really quick. Um, Marley Marl's The Symphony. I got a whole lot to give, so I'm a giver. Little at a time, new trails are blazing. Action is in effect and always stays in. Naughty by Nature's Hip Hop Hooray. I live in top of hip hop, this is hip hop of the day. I get props to hip hop, so hip hop hooray. Ashanti's Foolish. I hear a lot of the song Satisfied. And then, of course, Tupac Shakur's Ambitions as a Rider. Gabe and I hope that you've enjoyed this. This segment? I was always interested in the musical influences and where precisely these things are being pulled from. So I hope that this helps someone out there. Lin-Manuel's well-listened. I read that when he wrote the character descriptions for the actors to come audition, he gave them each two references for them to go off of. One from the hip-hop R&B world and one from the musical world. For example, for Aaron Burr, he wrote that it was like Javert meets Mostef. George Washington, he wrote John Legend meets Mufasa from The Lion King. King George, he wrote King Herod from Jesus Christ Superstar meets Wainwright. (laughs) And for Hercules Mulligan slash James Madison, he wrote Riza meets Zach from A Chorus Line. So he wanted to give the actors someone to grab on to, especially for those that were more into musical theater. They could be like, oh, it's like this musical theater person. Or for those that were more interested in hip hop and R&B, like I know David Diggs wasn't really a musical theater theater person before he did Hamilton. That's really smart. And the influences that he had were very specific too, I think, for each character. Yeah, I think it shows how articulate Miranda's vision was for every single character in detail. It's also crazy to me that, and I'm not sure if there's an exact term for this. There probably is. I guess you could call it like a never-ending medley. A medley is a piece of music that includes multiple pieces of music. In musical theater, I don't know if there's an actual term, but every character has this mantra or two, a a quote-unquote like song that they're singing, that they interject into each other's songs. So even while someone is singing about something else entirely, for a brief moment, a part of what they are saying might 
might line up with another character, then you will hear that other character interject their mantra into that song. So it's always astounding to me when that is done and it happens so frequently in this musical and it shows in Hamilton that you have to assume that Lin-Manuel Miranda is on another level and knows precisely how to write music like he could write his own name, essentially. It happens often in finale songs. So if you take the song nonstop, which is the first finale of the end of act one, you hear Hamilton is singing one thing. Then you have Burr come in singing his line and he starts singing, wait for it, which is the mantra from the song that he was singing earlier in act one. Then you have Angelica Schuyler come in and sing her melody from Satisfied. And then you have Washington come in and sing his mantra from History Has Its Eyes on You. And then the melody that it was actually creating nonstop the whole time time is a juxtaposition through all of the other melodies. It's a through line through all those things. And it has an emotional response from the audience because you've heard this character already singing their heart out about how they feel in a previous song. So when they say that hook or that line from the melody of the previous song, you feel the weight of it in this new song. And that is why musical theater, I think, is so impactful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the times in musical theater, the characters have to be kind of bare bones as a large portion of what the story that you're going to see is going to be just music. So you have to tell the story of the character through the music. And I think in Hamilton, he does that very quickly whenever a character is introduced. Like Stephen was saying, he gives them a phrase or a line for you to hold on to. And that's kind of their arc throughout the story. And I think having that really makes you feel invested in the characters and understand what they're going through. Like immediately for Aaron Burr, you understand his plight of constantly waiting for his time, whereas Hamilton is saying, just you wait, I'm coming. And I think there's that dichotomy there of it being Aaron Burr is waiting for his time and Alexander Hamilton is just going for it. And he's saying, just you wait, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm doing this. And I think that's also true with Angelica and Eliza of Angelica saying, I'm never going to be satisfied. And Eliza's constantly saying, isn't this enough? Will this be enough for you? Why isn't this life? We're so happy together. We have this great life. Why isn't this enough for you? She's constantly asking that. So I think there's that dichotomy too. And these themes that the characters have set them up in relation to each other a lot of the time. And I also think there's the word play with my shot and then Hamilton eventually being shot. And then with Eliza, there's also the idea of being in and out of the narrative. She brings that up a few times of saying, I want to be in the narrative. And then during Burn, when she has realized that her husband's been having an affair, she says, I want to be out of the narrative now. And then in the final act, she says, I'm putting myself back in the narrative. I love all the points you brought up about the character foils, because I didn't even think about, I mean, like the obvious of Burr and Hamilton, but I didn't think about just the depth of the character foils. But... I was also thinking from like a feminist perspective, you know, bringing up the, as you did, Anna, with the two women who are portrayed as helpless, being Eliza and Maria Reynolds. Because I remember someone made a comment when we were watching this, I can't remember who it was, who was saying, you know, well, look at, they're portraying all the women as helpless and for how progressive this play is supposed to be, what, you know, what are they doing Mm -hmm. to women? And I think the fact that it ends on Eliza being, writing herself back into that narrative and then also speaking to all the, 
amazing things she did. I can't remember all of them, but she opened yeah. up orphanages mm-hmm. and she there was like multiple. She helped to create the Washington Monument. She raised funds for that. She also really was a big part in cementing what we do know about Alexander Hamilton's legacy, which especially considering how tumultuous their relationship became towards the end of his life, it is pretty interesting that she did decide to do that. And it clearly shows that she still really loved him. Right. So I think the fact that the play kind of ends on that note of giving her autonomy and showing, you know, she's not helpless. Mm -hmm. I think that lends itself to that critique that I was hearing. I think it kind of dismantles Mm -hmm. that in a way. Yeah. And I do think there's something to be said, too, that women didn't have a lot of agency during that time, too. So Mm -hmm. while the Maria Reynolds storyline really does show that in that she didn't have any rights (laughs) and basically had to rely on men for her humanity and to livelihood, which is unfortunate, but unfortunately history. But I think this play does do a good job of humanizing all of the characters and making you empathize with them and making them real people. Because I think in history, Eliza Hamilton and Angelica Schuyler Church weren't ever really talked about before this play. People weren't really interested in them. And now I think people are very interested in them. So I think, well, yeah, probably they weren't shown as being super empowered. I think it has sparked a big interest in them Mm -hmm. and their roles in Hamilton's life as more than just wives and (laughs) sister-in-law. Yeah. We were talking about the representation of women at the time. Wasn't there a whole section or maybe an entire song from, I think it was Angelica, about what the assumed position of the woman was in that time period of just marriage and trying to find purpose through that? Yeah, that was in... um satisfied yeah that was early in the play right Mm -hmm. i think that was the first moment for me unless aaron burr had opened his mouth before that point in time because that (laughs) actor is incredible yeah but angelica's number with satisfied was the first time that play really hit me and i was like wow this is that was the song when it hit that moment and then it reversed back in time yeah, which was also incredible. Yeah, you were talking about that, how that really grabbed you. On a technical level, for sure. The way they play with time in that song, mm-hmm. but also just the message of it and how... I mean, it makes sense because there were, unfortunately, no women amongst the founding fathers because that's just what life was like at the time. But for, especially personally to Hamilton's story, for these multiple women to have such a profound impact on him... They're absolutely part of the discussion and you can't discount the effect they had, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout history. Yeah, my sister pointed out that the show is called Hamilton, not Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And that the show begins with Alexander Hamilton, but it ends with Eliza Hamilton. Mm. And I do think that's important because she was such a big part of his life. I don't know if that was intentional, but I do think that it is very symbolic that... It's not just Alexander Hamilton's story throughout. His life touched a lot of different people. Yeah. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> One of my last questions to you guys was based on Eliza's ending of the, in the play, which is at the very end of the play, Eliza's singing about seeing Hamilton again and talking about all the things she did to carry his name forward and what he achieved. And at the very end of the play, she sees Hamilton, presumably in the afterlife or something of the sort. And Hamilton leads her to the front of the stage. She looks up and gasps in a sort of astonishment. It's this dramatized gasp and the play ends. And Lin-Manuel Miranda has never explicitly said 
what exactly is going on there and wants it to be left to each actress that is playing Liza. But I was curious if any of you guys have an opinion about what she could be seeing or what that could be. That is such a good point you brought up because I totally forgot about that. That's the end of it, yeah. Lin-Manuel Miranda has been on record by saying it transcends time and space, meaning she could be looking at the audience watching the Hamilton play. From that perspective, I think maybe it's a culmination of her realizing the depth of the story that plays out, the Hamilton story, because she couldn't foresee maybe the impact and... It almost looks like it is both the shock, but perhaps satisfaction. I'm not really sure. And keep in mind that at that point, Hamilton has been dead. 50 years at least, I think. And so for him to take her hand and guide her to a point, you have to kind of assume that she might be in the afterlife. When I first saw it, I did think it was maybe her like seeing him upon her death. But the more and more I watch it, I think it's more her seeing the audience and knowing that all of the work that she did to cement Hamilton's legacy did matter. And that while it did take a while and that people did kind of forget about him a little bit and not really recognize his impact, this musical and the work that she did did matter in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I like that a lot too. And it just, I mean, it speaks to the heart of the play of history has its eyes on you. And history has through this play reoriented their eyes on her. I would agree. I would say it is a positive surprise. I mean, because who, who can know the impact their lives really truly have before they're gone? And maybe she had that sort of revelatory moment Perhaps it is at the moment of her death when she looks back and she sees everything that has transpired over the... I mean, she was almost 100 when she passed away, Mm -hmm. I think. Maybe to, in a moment, reflect on that and perhaps even to see beyond that and to see the impact, like we mentioned, that this story would have had from a person who is not even amongst the most memorable of the Founding Fathers. If you talk to people on the street, you know, they probably have more to say about the Washingtons and the Adams and the Jeffersons over Hamilton. Mm -hmm. But the fact that, like Anna and Allie said, Eliza had so much to do to try to get that story out into the world of the work this man put in. Maybe she, in that moment, she realized that it was not all for naught. To play off of that in response to you, because I wrote something similar to end this. I've been saying kind of since the beginning, because of all these amazing feats that Hamilton, the play, has achieved, it being a game changer for diverse casting, it being so well written musically that it popularizes hip hop into the future of musical theater while making it approachable for people who might have otherwise been turned off by hip hop. It reviving these historical figures to the limelight, making them accessible to all people, and maybe even changing how everyone views Alexander Hamilton for all of history. I have a hard time believing there will ever be another musical that is as much of a work of art as this one, or that will ever be as impactful as this one is or has ever been as impactful as a musical because it's doing so much. You wait until we have a musical based on what we're dealing with now. (laughs) I just, racism in particular has been something that dates back to the conception of our country. So the, the that we're dealing with right now, yes, it dates back pretty far. You could say the ideas of those things, but the mistreating of people who have just as many rights as everyone else and what this is doing for people of color and minorities or underrepresented people 
is so impactful. And I had some of these statistics as well. The effects of Hamilton, diverse casting has become one of the norms in the future of musical theater because of this play. Lin-Manuel Miranda has even said he wants to hire women to play some of the founding fathers in the future. That'd be epic. He calls them founding mothers (laughs) as a joke. The Tina Turner play that just came out a few years ago. Uh, follows in suit and so did the recent reboot of Oklahoma which has traditionally been an all-white cast basically as casting minorities or underrepresented people Americans read more apparently and Ron Chernow's book has shot back up to the top a uh, recent desire to change the $10 bill to Harriet Tubman replacing Hamilton was revoked and she will now replace the now unpopular Andrew Jackson on the 20. There you go. And it's teaching kids to love history. Like Anna was saying, like middle school, high school age kids who are super into theater are listening to the soundtrack even before seeing this on Disney Plus and they're taking those ideas, that ideology and those mantras into their life. This play, this musical will have a lasting impact on kids and then people as they become adults and will change, I think, a lot of the foundation of the ideologies going forward. Even though we started at the very same time, Alexander Hamilton began to climb. How to account for his rise to the top? Man, the man is nonstop. This might be over the top. This is just the kind of impact that it had on me as I think about these things. I have just felt thankful just to view it in the time that we have in this moment of so many hot button issues specifically going on around us and just be part of the history itself and not to mention how inspiring it is to go and try new things or to dream just a little bit more. And as the musical says, look around, look around, how lucky we are to be alive right now. It is a brilliant declaration, I think, of remaining positive and optimistic amidst so much revolution and apparent tragedy. And that's the kind of impact it's had on me as a, you know, cishetter, a white male, age of 33, living in 2020 during a pandemic. And I, I can't even imagine the type of impact it would have on people who never get to see plays with a cast that is completely and wholly diverse like this. Even the actors themselves felt privileged to join the cast because it's part of history. This musical is now part of history and uh, totally worth doing on our little podcast because of that. Yo, who the F is this? Why do you always say what you believe? Why do you always say what you believe? Every proclamation guarantees free ammunition for your enemies. Lastly, I just wanted to say, because Stephen, you used the word foundation, and it just reminded me of the song Dear Theodosia. And for me, that song really struck a chord for the heart of what you were saying, Stephen. You know, it's Burr and Hamilton singing to their own son and daughter. And they're basically saying, you know, we'll lay a strong enough foundation. We'll make it right for you. And I feel like that's the heartbeat of what this play has led to, what this discussion is stirring on, is how can we continue to make things right? And how can we continue to relay a better foundation over and over again? For once in your life, take a stand with pride. I don't understand how you stand to the side. I'll keep all my hands close to my chest.
one thing that I kept seeing over and over as I was researching Hamilton and not just the play, but the person, Alexander Hamilton, was how much these characters were just normal people creating the foundation of our government and that our government and the people that founded it should not be idolized as they are. Yeah, I definitely think you shouldn't walk away from Hamilton thinking Hamilton is this great guy, like he's a hero and everything like that. I think you should come away thinking this man was very interesting. He led a very unique life. He had a really big impact on the United States and its formation. But I think that if you come out of it really idolizing Hamilton, you didn't really watch it the right way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not to tell people how to watch it, but. (laughs) That would be my takeaway. I think before you blindly chase after this ideal, and so often, you know, we think of the American dream, as we mentioned, I think also in the beginning of this podcast as something that is, what does that mean, really? And I think what it should mean is just to be the best person you can be in in every way and to value not just success and wealth and power, but also uh, goodness and compassion. Ride like you're running out of time Right day and night like you're running out of time Every day you fight like you're running out of time Like you're running out of time Are you running out of time? How do you ride like tomorrow won't arrive? How do you ride like you needed to survive? How do you ride every second you're alive? Every second you're alive And history has its eyes on you I am not throwing away my Well, this has been another issue of the Cult Podcast. Okay, why don't you take us out? With what? You take us out, because you have spoken the least. (laughs) What would you like me to say? I don't know. Everybody should watch this. (laughs) (laughs) But this piece of art, I think, is incredibly pertinent to what we're going through now as a culture, not just in America, but also worldwide. So you'll probably never watch anything or you have at least to this point never seen anything like yeah nothing will impact you like this will impact you and for that reason i think it's worth watching like i had said earlier this for as much hype as you might have heard us just talk about it or you've heard other people talk about it this will either live up to or exceed the hype as gabe can attest because i made him watch it i was like there's no way because i'm not historically a big musical person but i was extremely happy i ended up watching it Aaron Burr was also part of a really weird conspiracy to separate Texas from the United States really? and stood trial for that of a conspiracy to divide the Union. <laughs> he had a really, really crazy second act, and I know Lin-Manuel Miranda has joked that he would do a sequel about that, and I think that would be great, especially if Leslie Odom Jr. were to reprise the role. Yeah. Side note, Jonathan Groff, I loved this play. I feel like him as the king, the first time he came out, that really hooked me as well, just with the the, the melody and the whole outfit. And the spit. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I know, he probably must have been like, no, not this one.